Well, good morning. My name is Wayne Cotton. For those who don't know me, be grateful. You'll get it later. So uh, before we start, I need to tell you guys, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart and from my family. You let me be gone last week. Um, today, we're going to talk about how do you see? Specifically, we're going to have Jesus look at a Pharisee and ask him how he sees a particular person. But how do you see people? And so we have these ideas and preconceived notions about who people are by how they present themselves on Facebook or other social media, how they present themselves in public. And just for the reason of transparency, as we talk about today, I had the privilege and really it was a terrible privilege. I had to do a funeral for my cousin last weekend. Tori Funk, 58 years old, committed suicide a month ago, my cousin. Uh, Tori was an amazing man. Had a hard life, uh, not all his choice, and stormed through many battles. My mom had the privilege of leading him to Christ in his 30s. I walked with him as an adult, and he just finally decided that this time on life on earth is done, and I want to be in the presence of my Lord, and he called it a day. And so I had to go love on family last week, and it was not easy. It was not fun. Um, There were many tears. There were some sweet moments. My parents were praying over me Saturday morning as I got ready to the funeral. And my dad looked at me afterwards and said, are you okay? You're nervous? And I said, I'm not nervous at all today. I'm fine. I'm going to cry, be a little emotional, but we're going to speak truth to our family. I'm nervous about next week because I got to follow Rob and BJ in a three-part series. That makes me nervous. So, I mean, they did a great job the last two weeks, right? I mean, I thought they were amazing. Uh, Rob, we've known each other, what, eight? years-ish, nine years, 12. Okay. Um, that's the fourth time I've heard Rob speak publicly. So it's amazing. Um, BJ did great as well. And so I have to follow them up and bring a sermon today. And you know, I'm not nervous at all. I'm not upset at all. Is it hot in here? (laughs) Um, you know, Troy came up to me, handed me this bottle of water you saw, and he leaned over. And as I thought he was gonna say a prayer, said, I got a cup of coffee since you're preaching today. So we're going to take a 10-minute break so you can go get a cup of coffee. And so let's talk about how you see me. So what you see before you today is a 53-year-old guy who has 84-year-old knees, a 94-year-old shoulder, and according to my doctor, a 110-year-old back. I lived life and had fun, and I'm now paying the price. But let's go back in time, 1985, okay? I got my white Adidas on. I got my socks up to my cap with the stripes and then I push them down so they look good. I've got my running shorts, even though I've never run a day in my life. And I've got my TGNY knockoff OP called Lake Waco. All right, so I look good. I mean, I'm I'm hot. I stand at five foot six and I weigh a whopping 120 pounds. I am a specimen. And yes, I ate another human being to get this size, leave me alone. So I am getting on a bus or actually I think a van, and we're gonna go to Austin to a retreat for students. And along the way, my youth minister, who by the way, just retired last month, he went from student ministry in 70 year old uh, adult, retired, went straight into senior adult ministry. I've never seen it before in my life, it's crazy. Anyways, so my youth minister is driving the, the van. And in Austin, he pulls off and he picks up a hitchhiker. 
I mean, even then I'm thinking this is a lawsuit waiting to happen. And that's when I knew my call the church administration. It was amazing. Okay. End of story. So no, so we pick up this hitchhiker and I'm thinking, are you nuts? What are you doing? My parents are going to kill you and bury your body on the church campus somewhere. I mean, you're dead. And so not only do we pick him up, we then pull into a 7-Eleven. Okay, y'all can go in and get you a drink or a snack. And the guy goes, well, if it's okay with you, I'm just going to sit in the van. Dude, he's going to steal all our stuff. <laughs> and I remember getting out of the van and walking around to Bob and trying to be as subtle as an awkward 15-year-old can be and whisper as quiet as a 15-year-old can whisper, Bob, he's going to take all our things. I was very subtle. So we got to the encampment. Nothing had been stolen yet that we knew. And he goes, do you mind if, we take a, if I take a shower? So he goes into the guy's side of the, of the dorm, goes into the shower, and all of us are standing by our beds going, what do we do? Do we leave our bunk with stuff here? Or do we, I mean, if we leave, it looks like we trust him. If we stay, we don't lose anything. So we provided a lookout. Who's the smallest upperclassman in the room? So I hid under the bed like any brave man would do. And this guy comes walking out. Now remember, this is 1985. He's got white tennis shorts on, brown boat shoes, a pink polo with the collar turned up. And I went, oh my gosh, he's a youth minister. I don't know that I'm going to heaven now, man. Oh my goodness. So we get out there and I follow him out and I'm going... Abort, abort, fellas. It's not. The guy mowed his lawn for three weeks in that same outfit, never washing it. Put it on that day, that Friday, to be picked up in the van, and he was our guest speaker for the weekend at the retreat. <laughs> Bob's never apologized for that lie, and that lie was sin, and we'll talk about it later. But it's perception, it's what we see. And so over the last two weeks, we've talked about the art of neighboring. And today I want to, I want to talk about how do we see the world? How do we see our neighbors? How do we see our fellow church members? How do we see ourselves? So as I told you, uh, the beginning of September, I got some terrible news about Tori. And then mid month, my dog decided my hearing aids for the first time in over 20 years, I put my hearing aids on the table without the case and my beautiful little puppy of all of 10 months old, she's, she's a precious little thing at, at 80 pounds, stands about this tall, decides she needed a new chew toy out of the 4,000 that she has and wanted my hearing aids. We're still waiting for those to pass. Anyhow, um, so I've got new hearing aids. So it's just been a wonderful season of life for me. But what I want us to do is, is in that process is, is I started looking at what had happened over the last month I was just pushed to Romans 8, and that's not our passage today. But Romans 8, I had camped out in for the last month because I just needed some hope. You know, it wasn't all fun and games, and while I can joke about it and make light of it, let, let, let's take a, take a couple of truths real quick. You know, Tori's death was sin, but it wasn't unforgivable sin. It wasn't. Tori's in heaven. He's a child of God. He's a prince. He's standing in perfection. So I can joke a little bit about it and lighten up a little bit about it because I know I get to see him again. I get to spend eternity with him. I couldn't walk with him that last year because he ghosted me. So I don't know what all he was struggling with. 
but it was pretty dark. It had to be. But that started me thinking, is, is God, how, how do you even see me? I mean, we joke. I was talking with a church member this week. And for those who really know me, you'll get a kick out of this. Those who don't, you'll still enjoy it. And he goes, I, I called the church member who was hurting. And said, hey, I just want to let you know I'm praying for you. I heard about your situation. I just want to know, we, man, we love you. And he said, I can't believe someone of your stature would call me. And I went, well, I'm kind of short and, and I'm more wide than stature. And, you know, and he was meaning it at respect. I was like, oh, brother, let me just tell you a quick truth. I'm a wretched sinner just like you. It's okay. I don't have stature. I, I'm in this with you. And while I appreciated the respect, it again re- reiterated some, some things I've been thinking about. And that was this. So over the past six to eight weeks, I've been praying for each one of you. I've been praying for myself. And I've been praying that God would let us see us, ourselves, in the mirror as he sees us. And I was sharing this with Jana this week, and I'm going to rat Jana out a little bit because she looked at me and she said, so you've been praying that God would see, I would see myself as God sees me. And I said, yeah. She goes, well, we're just wretches. I said, no, that's given. I mean, we all know that. We're all wretched. But God sees you as a daughter of the king. He sees you as a princess. He sees me as a prince. We need to see ourselves as what God has made us through Jesus Christ. And we need to see each other the same way. God values you. Now, while I won't go as far as say Jesus Christ loves you so much that he died for you because you know my belief, God saved you from himself, by himself, for himself. He still loves you and wants you to be who he's called you to be. And there's a whole world out there that aren't our brothers and sisters yet. They don't know Jesus. They haven't had that opportunity to discover who he is. This weekend, I had family. I promise you, some of my family have never heard the gospel. And I got to present the gospel during a funeral and tell my family about the reality of Jesus Christ. And so, if we start looking at ourselves the way God sees us, we start looking at the people around us the way God sees us, especially when we're driving in a car because we know everybody else is a wretched sinner in a car. The left lane is for passing. 30 is not acceptable in a 45 ever. That is also sin, at least in my book. Anyways, so if we start seeing others as Christ sees them, and then we see the world as Christ sees them, what happens? Well, we know Christ looked at the world with great compassion. There were times he was deeply moved by the people. If you look at Matthew 23, and he calls out the woes of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it's hard to hear the inflection in the context because it's written. But if you really read it, Jesus is is not angry at them. He's not getting on to them. He's exasperated. He's worn out. He's been speaking truth into their lives for three years and they still don't receive it. And that's why he's frustrated. And then he turns in Matthew 24 and looks at Jerusalem and cries out a lament, brokenhearted, that they don't get it. And so here we are. And we're going to look at a passage today that Jesus, yet again, turns it on its ear. Because, you know, in this society, in this time period, they have all this history of being God's people that they can build on. And for those who haven't gone to Sunday school today, I, Sunday morning Bible study for you people who are hip. Anyway, so, so the message today is in Hosea. And Hosea is very powerful in this moment and, and speaks to this moment as well. 
And there's a portion in there where it talks about God wants our love over our sacrifice. And so God, through Christ, is telling us that the first will be last. The last will be first. Those who serve will lead. To lead to serve. I mean, it's just so backwards. It makes no sense in reality. And Jesus comes to this place where he is going to turn everything on its ear. And this is one of these moments. So if you'll turn to Luke chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 36. And as you're turning there, I want you to understand we need to go back in time again, not to 1985, but to that first century. And in that first century, there are seasons and times that those who had money, wealth, and position would invite people to dinner. And when they would invite people to dinner, it would be a teacher or an honored guest, and they would come and recline at the table. But then they would open the courtyard for everybody else to come here. And as these other people are in the courtyard, they're coming to here, they're not going to get any food. They're not allowed to speak. They're just allowed to observe. And so there's a Pharisee. He invites Jesus to dinner. He's the honored guest. And we're going to discover that there's certain protocols that you do and there's certain practices, especially when it comes to male and female relations. And so we discovered that interaction in this time period, number one, women, you're supposed to keep your heads covered. You're not supposed to interact with men unless the social customs dictate. Servant coming in to bring you water and towel to wash your feet, whatever. Certain norms are allowed. But then we see this woman who happens to be most likely a prostitute come in and observe and experience a moment with Christ that throws all the convention out the door. It totally messes up the whole party. And so let's start with verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he, would tender, he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's home, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with the hair of her head. She began kissing his feet and anointed them with perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. She's a sinner. And Jesus responded to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50. And when they were unable to repay, he canceled their debts. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I assume the one whom he canceled the greater debt. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since I came in here. You did not anoint my head with oil. She anointed my feet with perfume. And for this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but the one who's forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And then those who were reclining at the table with him began saying to the Psalms, who is this man who forgives sins? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So let's summarize the whole thing. We can start at the very beginning at verse 36 and go through this whole thing. But really, verse 44 has it all. He said to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her? Do you see her for who she is? Do you see her as God sees her? That's the crux of this whole thing. Everything is balanced around that moment. 
So, you know, I will never understand this. This is just the history of life. But in that time period, tables are not tables like we have. They didn't have chairs or benches and didn't have pub tables. This is a low table. He's probably reclining at the table. So his feet are kicked back in front of him. He's leaning on the table a little bit. You know, they ate at coffee tables, basically. I mean, I know I'm being a little little sarcastic, but I mean, that's basically, they weren't that big as far as height. I mean, come on, Roman Empire, you've got running water and aqueducts. Can't you create a table and chairs? I mean, it works, right? But that's not how they do it. So they've got this, this setup that's probably in a horseshoe kind of setup, and they're reclining at a table instead of sitting at the table. And so that's why she's behind him. That's why it, you went, what do you mean it's feet are behind him? They're behind him. And so she comes up, and this is a woman who's an outcast. I mean, this rabbi has thrown this party out of social obligation. Maybe he wants to show off Jesus and he has that connection with Jesus. Or maybe he wants to try to trap Jesus in a conversation. It doesn't go into great detail as to why Simon invited him. It's just that Simon invited him. And then this woman, who's from the red light district, comes into the suburbs. Comes into the house. And she throws the whole social mores into chaos. She goes around behind the table instead of standing in front of the table and listening from the courtyard. She uncovers her head and undoes her hair and she cries on his feet, touching his feet, physical contact, showing an emotional connection that is inappropriate. She's drying his feet with her hair. Then she takes an an alabaster vial of, of expensive perfume and breaks it and puts it all over his feet. I mean, she is breaking every rule and social norm in the book. And so if you and I were present, we probably wouldn't be far from Simon going, who does she think she is? Why is she doing this? And I think I should cross my arms in indignation at this point. That's what we're going through. And then we would look at Jesus and go, don't you understand who this is? And you're letting her touch you. You're letting her be in your presence. And while we can pick on Simon real easy because Simon's an easy target. If we're not careful, we'd be the same person. And then Jesus does this, this beautiful thing. Simon is thinking something. And so what does Jesus do? He answers exactly what he's thinking with a parable. And so these two guys owe wages, 500 denarii and 50 denarii. Well, being your staff member that, that deals with the finances, I did some research. And I discovered some interesting things. Number one, most people can't make their mind up how much a denarii is to save their life. But I did discover this. Most scholars believe that it basically is the difference between two years wages and a month and a half of wages. So you've got one guy who owes two years worth of salary and another guy who owes a month and a half. And the money lender forgives all of it. I hope the money lender forgave all but 10% so we could at least get the tithe out of it. But that's another discussion for another day. So we've got this massive story. And so then Simon, being a Pharisee, thinks his answer through and says, I assume. See, he answers, but he tries to answer it in a way that he's not going to get trapped by the words, right? He's crafting his sentence so it sounds right. But what is the problem is he's trapped not by his words, but by his action. Because if you look at verses 44 through 50, what does Jesus say? You didn't give me anything to clean my feet. A common practice of respect is if I'm coming into your home from a dusty road, you're going to give me something to wash my feet with. The common practice is you're probably going to greet me with a kiss out of respect and and gratitude for me attending your party or attending your dinner. 
You're also going to take some inexpensive olive oil and rub it on my forehead because my forehead's probably parched. And what Jesus says is this. You didn't give me water, but she washed my feet with her tears. You didn't greet me with a polite kiss on, on the cheek or the hand. She won't stop kissing my feet. You didn't offer me even some olive oil to, to put on my forehead, but she has broken something that's probably the most valuable thing she owns, an expensive bottle of perfume. And he combines the whole situation and puts it completely in reverse. And now who is the sinner and who is the saint? It's not the woman. It's Simon. And so we don't have any evidence of, of how this woman came to Christ. We don't see that there was a miracle performed or that she heard some sermon that Jesus preached or some parable that he spoke. But somehow she had an interaction with Jesus Christ prior to this moment that radically changed the way she saw herself and the way she saw Jesus. She saw herself as Jesus saw her. I'm a sinner. I am unclean and unworthy, but God found value. And so she goes and she has this outpouring of love that is deep. It's emotional. It is awe-inspiring. It is absolutely life-changing. And so Jesus looks at this moment. And and while we don't know the details, he says this. I tell you, her sins are many and they've been forgiven. He's not condoning her previous lifestyle. He's not dismissing it. He's not excusing it. He's not hiding it. He's stating it as fact, but the key is this. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. So Jesus isn't staying in the past either. He's not writing her off as hopeless. He's not rejecting her. He's not putting her into the stereotype. He looks at her in this experience while everybody's kind of murmuring to themselves and says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And in this process, in the middle of that, like he said, he looks at Simon and says, do you see this woman? It's a simple question. Now, did Simon see her? Yeah. What did he see? He saw a prostitute getting too intimate with Jesus and was offended. So did he see her? No, he didn't see her at all. He saw what he had put in his mind, what he's got locked in as right and wrong, what he thinks is right and just. And he couldn't be further from the truth. These are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the people of God. And they can't even see the Messiah physically present in front of them. And while it's easy for us to look back 2,000 years and beat them up as being foolish, narrow-minded, nearsighted, and just at some level crazy. Do we not do the same thing if we're not careful? We look at this person and man, they've got it all. They're successful. They have a nice home. They have nice cars. They have the perfect family. But what's going on inside those doors? I think it would be fair to say, if I asked you to raise your hands, if anybody's life is perfect, raise your hand. I don't know that very many hands would go up. And those that did, we'd all know that you're a liar. And therefore, we'd be going, you're a sinner. We don't have that. But what we post on Facebook, what we post on social media is that perfect moment, that perfect view of ourselves if we're not careful. And we give this impression that's not real. I mean, what's the most common statement in a Baptist church on a Sunday morning besides Jesus, Sunday school, and Bible? How are you? I'm fine. 
I want to walk by somebody one Sunday, and if it's, if it's you, I'm sorry. I want to walk by and say, how you doing? And you go, fine, I'm going to stop and go, liar, liar, pants on fire. Just to see what you do. Which means I'll probably get hot coffee splashed in my face. But, hey, we're Southern Baptists. Coffee and donuts. Amen. So, so he's not writing her off as hopeless. He's not rejecting her. And he's trying to get Simon to see who she really is. Do you see this woman? He's making Simon stop and think. Do I really see her? Or do I see my prejudice? My misguided notions of the appearance of virtue. My preconceived ideas. Have I written her off as a foregone conclusion that she'll never change her future? Do I see her as a real live human being? And the problem is, if we're not careful, we do the same thing. Years ago, we were living in Austin and there was a, a, I think it was a lady with at least one or two kids. Jenna will correct me later and tell me I'm totally wrong and she'll be right. But we would leave church and this lady would be standing on a street corner close to where we were going to turn off to go to our home. And at some point, I think Jana gave her some, we, we, we brought some food with us to give her food, but ended up, I think Jana even went as far or we got a hold of someone that could give her a job. And we tried to give this lady on the street corner that's holding sign a job. And I just remember when she rejected that job, I was just the meanest, snarkiest, most vile human being in my mind that I could be. Yeah, you don't want to make a job. You're making a fortune off of us standing on a street corner. Do I know her situation? Nope. Do I know anything about her? Nope. Do I know what she's been through? Nope. Do I know the struggles that she's dealing with in that moment? Nope. But boy, I've written her off in 90 seconds because my wife went out of her way to give her food and possibly a job. What kind of demons is she battling? What kind of struggles is she having? Is she dealing with mental illness? Is she dealing with an abusive husband or a family? I don't know the story. I didn't take the time to see the woman. For who she is. Because they fall in two categories. We look at people and think they've got it all together. And in fact, they may not. They may have nothing together. They may be falling apart behind closed doors or on the inside. And we don't know that. We don't see that. All we see is the facade that's put up. Or we see this horrible outside. I mean, it's disgusting, dirty, and it it smells. I mean, like really smells. But we don't see what's going on inside because we don't take the time to look at it. Our oldest daughter's from China and we spent two weeks there in the process of getting her. And in those two weeks, there were two radical perceptions in my wife and I. The first perception was me. This is awesome. This is wonderful. This is amazing. And my wife is like, oh my gosh, can we just go home? This is horrible. I'm ready to be done and take my child and go live my life. I mean, Polar opposite opinions. I lost 12 pounds. It was awesome. But, but the one thing we discovered, which was fascinating and it really speaks to this moment, is this. We would drive along a street and one of our translators would go, Wayne, when we turn the corner, I want you to pay attention to the side. Okay. So we drive down the street and there's just beautiful homes all up and down the street. I mean, just stunning front entrances. It's great. And we turn the corner and you know what? They didn't even have a back wall to the house. They didn't have a full wall on the side. In fact, some of them didn't have roofs completely covering their house. They put all the money into the facade. So you would think they're doing okay. Now, is that them, the government? I don't know. But how many of us do the same thing? 
We whitewash the tomb on the outside so it looks good. And inside we're dying. When this whole time, what is our purpose as the church? It's not to sing a certain song or get a certain thing or do a certain thing a certain way. It's to be the church. It's for me to be available to you, you be available to me, us lifting each other up, holding each other accountable, and building each other up to be more like Christ. And yet we put each other this far away because we don't want to show our weaknesses. My life has been hell for the last month. I'll just say it. It has been hard. I have been broken more in the last six weeks than I have been in my life. And I have felt very alone. But I have a circle of friends, staff, and lay leaders that have loved me through this. And I can never thank you enough. Any other place, I would not be here today. I would have checked out. But because of this church, you people, you walked with me through this season not alone. So thank you. That's what God's called us to be. That is church. And that's what I want to be a part of. So, as we move forward, we need to ignore the social imposed boundaries that we put on this world. We need to ignore what we think is always the right way to do things or the wrong way to do things. Because you know what? Sometimes none of it's right and sometimes none of it's wrong. We're talking about a relationship with a living God. And your relationship is going to be different than my relationship. And it doesn't mean my relationship's better than yours or yours is better than mine. It's different. Why? Because we're at different places with God. I have a relationship with a lady named Jana Cotton. I have no idea how we've made it 30 years other than one purpose. Jesus Christ. The one thing my wife and I did right in this time is we made Jesus the most important thing in our life. And there have been some hard moments. There have been some fights. I was joking with her this morning. A few years ago, she had had her fill with life for a moment. And she said, I'm packing up the cats. I'm packing up my stuff. And I'm leaving. And there's a seat right beside me if you want to come along. Which kind of self-defeats the whole thing of leaving. But still, that was her mindset. I'm, I'm gone. And you're coming with me. All right, we're mad. We're leaving. But isn't that the way it's supposed to be? I mean, so, hey, we got one thing right done. Okay, good evening. It's been a great night. All right, so... So, that said, we found out another friend lost their marriage this summer. 22 years. And they just couldn't make it work. And it broke our heart last night. And the first thing Jenna wrote is, I'm sorry we weren't there for you. We weren't more available. We weren't more engaged. I mean, they live halfway across the country. But those were our people. Years ago in another church. There are people in our church right now that are dealing with things that are literally life and death. There are things that people in our church are dealing with that are scaring them to death, but for health reasons. We have people in our church who have family members that are making choices that are going to kill themselves if they keep making these choices, and we just gloss it over. Stop. Let's be the church together. Let's look at one another as Christ sees us. Let's be who God's called us to be as the people of God and the bride of Christ. So as we receive God's love, as we accept the salvation that comes through Jesus, we got to share it with the same 
passion that we received it. We have to do this out of love. We received the salvation that God's given us. We've been forgiven and filled by the Holy Spirit. Now we've got to go share this with everyone so they can discover a God who longs to forgive and embrace them as well. We need to tell the story of Jesus and a God who still loves, who refuses to use stereotypes, who offers absolute hope, who loves completely and has the authority to say, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, now go in peace. So as we go in peace today, I want to go with this. Our deep love for Jesus needs to reach out to those around us. They need to go to your neighbor. You've heard about it for three weeks now. You need to reach out to that neighbor across the street, next door, your coworker, whomever. They need Jesus just as much as you needed Jesus. And you need to invest in them just as you've been invested in. Someone invested you, right? They invested in you. You do not come to Jesus more than likely by your own amazing mental capacity and voracious reading ability of the word of God. You had a relationship with somebody that helped draw you there. I know that was my case. And many of you that have told me your testimonies, that's your case. Someone invested in you. So now it's our time to invest in them. So when I stand one day in the presence of God, here's my prayer. God's not going to do, well done, good and faithful Wayno. You did great. You had a decent house. You had a couple of nice cars. Your family's not totally messed up. No, what I want him to do is say, hey, you loved God. You loved people. You made disciples. Thank you. Thank you for doing I asked. You did the three things. That's what God's calling us to do as a people. It's easy to say, I know, love God, love people, make disciples. All right. See you next Sunday. It's the execution that is a beating. And that's why we have to do it together because that's why God created the church. Let's pray. Father, I lift your name up right now and I thank you so much for your unfailing love. I thank you for a, a love that is so deep and so complete that in spite of our own sin and wretchedness, you make us pure and holy. Father, I thank you for each one of my family members in this room and what they bring to the table in our church. Father, we are complete in you, but together we are your bride, and so thank you for that. Father, I pray for each of us in this room. We have neighbors, we have friends, we have coworkers who have no clue who you are or just have a small taste. And while it's not our job to save anybody, we don't have that power. It's our job to show the world who you are to speak about you and tell your name to those around us. So I pray today that number one, we can see ourselves, our church members, our neighbors, and our society the way you see us. Give us that heart of compassion that only comes for you. And that we can see those around us. And it'll break our heart when we see those who don't know you. That we'll be compelled to speak truth because You're the only hope they have. Father, I pray for our church. I don't want to just come here once a week and do this little worship thing and go home. I want us to live life together as you commanded. I want to be there for one another. I want to engage with one another. I want to encourage one another. I want to hold each other accountable when we have to. And so, Father, I pray that you continue to grow us through Bible study, through discipleship, through doing life together. Not just showing up on Sunday and spending an hour in a big room. 
Father, as we enter in this time of, of invitation, I pray that we'll use your altar and just let some things go and give them to you. That if we are looking for a church home, we'll come forward and say, I want to I be part of this church. I want to do church here. For those who may know Jesus but haven't been living the life they've called, been called to live, then I pray they, they'll make that decision today of, no, I'm going to be who you've called me to be and do what you've called me to do. And finally, for those in this room who are going, I, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. Father, I pray that you'll give them the courage to take a step, walk forward, and let's have a conversation about who it is you really are. The Messiah, the Christ, the one who saves all things. So, Father, in this time of invitation, I pray that we will be able to respond to you the way you want us to respond to you and engage the way you want us to engage. We love you and thank you for this time together. Amen.